Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I'm in conversation with an aeronautics engineer who has created a bionic jellyfish and is also working towards making large wind farms more efficient. Jellyfish have a very simple yet very effective way of swimming. And this has attracted the attention of scientists and engineers who look to jellyfish for inspiration while developing aquatic robots. One of those researchers is John DeBerry, who is Centennial Professor of Aeronautics and Mechanical Engineering at the California Institute of Technology. And I'm very pleased that John joins me down the line from Pasadena to talk about some of his research interests, including jellyfish. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, so John, some of your recent research has focused on understanding how jellyfish swim. And you've also looked at how jellyfish could be electromechanically enhanced for use in ocean exploration. What is it about jellyfish that you find so fascinating? Well, as you said, they're very simple animals. When you go to the aquarium, they're maybe not the first thing that catches your eye because they don't seem to be doing very much. But in fact, they're the most efficient swimmers in the ocean. They uh, have been swimming for 500 million years, and they get from point A to point B using less energy than any of the other organisms out there. So for me as a scientist and engineer, it's always been fascinating to understand how they do it. How can they take such a simple body shape and a simple motion, and yet be so energy efficient. And and so, do you? What is the sort of the status of the research at the moment? I mean, do you and your colleagues do you have a good understanding of how jellyfish swim? We do now with colleagues, including biologists uh, like Jack Costello and Sean Colin. We've spent the past couple of decades studying the flow, the water motions that these animals create. Now, the big challenge here is, of course, water is transparent. So we had to develop new research techniques to measure the motion of that water surrounding the animals. So while you're at the aquarium and looking at their sort of lazy motion through the water, we're actually more interested in that water current around them, which is actually quite fascinating and turns out to be the key to their effective swimming. And, and I believe you've got in, in, at Caltech, you've got, a, is, is it a large tank? that you have where, where you do this research. Can you, can you describe that tank? Is it, um, I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of picturing a, a, a tank that you can look into with jellyfish swimming in it, but I'm guessing it's more complicated than that. Well, well, that's correct. So what we need to do is to put the animals in an environment where they're comfortable and where they'll swim as close to they would in their natural environment as possible. And then what we need to do is find a way to measure that transparent water. So we put little tiny glass beads in the water, uh, the thickness about the size of uh, the thickness of your hair, and we shine laser light through the water. Now that laser light scatters off of those little beads in the water. And as the animals swim through the water, those beads start to move. And so we can use high-speed cameras and some computer algorithms to then measure the water motion that those jellyfish create as they're swimming. I see. And you're currently working on uh, the artificial enhancement of jellyfish. Um, so, so is this, am I, am I right in thinking it's sort of a, a bionic jellyfish? W what's the motivation for that research? 
It is. Yeah. Well, you know, we began this work thinking that we would study the natural jellyfish and those water motions that make them so energy efficient. And then we would go off and build a mechanical robot using engineered materials. What we found over time is that we could replicate that swimming motion that you see at the aquarium. But those mechanical materials, those engineered materials, they use a lot more energy than the uh, natural tissue of the jellyfish. So about uh, a, a half a decade ago or so, we said, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And let's see if we can use the jellyfish themselves as the robots for this mission of understanding our oceans. Now, an important uh, point here is that jellyfish are uniquely uh, suited for this work and when we think about the ethics of this type of manipulation, they don't have a central nervous system or pain receptors. And we've shown that they don't exhibit any sort of a stress response if we artificially manipulate their swimming. And so they turned out to be the perfect system in which to take advantage of their natural swimming abilities in this engineering context. So, so how, how does that work in terms of artificially manipulating the jellyfish? It, is, is it a mechanical manipulation where you, you add something to the jellyfish that that moves under under its own power power and that sort of gently pushes the jellyfish in the direction that you want it to go or is it an is it a neurological thing or, or, or maybe it's, it's electrical both? yeah it's electrical we wanted to, to start as close to the actual animal control as possible the real animals have eight pacemaker cells around the edge of that umbrella-shaped jellyfish that you're used to seeing. A pacemaker that's not unlike the pacemaker that keeps our heart beating on time. So what we did was to develop small electronic devices that we could implant in the jellyfish tissue and acts basically like an artificial pacemaker. We set the pace at which the electrical signals are sent to the muscle, and that leads the body to contract and swim as the animals normally would. Now, if you go to the aquarium and you watch one of these jellyfish, they might pulse once or twice and then float for a while and then pulse another couple of times. We can, with our external control, enable them to continuously swim for long periods of time at a very regular pace. And so that was work that a, a former student, Nicole Shu, who's now a professor at the University of Colorado, demonstrated. Recently, we've gone on to say, can we also mechanically enhance the animals? And that's the, the more recent work that we've accomplished. I see. And, and, and as for the motivation, is, it to, is, is the idea that you can strap something to the jellyfish, some, uh, I don't know, some sort of instrument for making measurements in the ocean or exploring bits of the ocean that maybe are very difficult um, for a robotic system to, to access. Is, is that the idea that you're... It, it is. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, I sit in an aerospace department and, of course, we're very interested in exploring uh, places off of our own planet here on Earth. But the ocean really is one of the least explored places in our universe. And that's despite the fact that it's so important for our well-being. It sequesters a large portion of the carbon emissions that we uh, make. It's important in terms of uh, fisheries, food for people who live in coastal regions, for shipping, for energy in terms of oil and gas. And so because of that importance of the ocean, we think it's a vital that we continue to expand the portion of the ocean that's been explored. Today, it's a fraction, a few percent of the ocean's volume that's been explored. We are interested in developing technologies to increase that significantly. 
one of the big challenges there is being able to go deeper in the ocean than the, the surface. From the surface or at the surface, you can use satellites, you can use surface ships, uh, even small submarines that can go down to limited depths to study the ocean. But if you really want to get deep, you know, a kilometer, two kilometers deep in the ocean, we have very few tools to do that successfully. You'll recall the, the tragedy of the uh, submersible that went to the Titanic last year. Mm -hmm. The challenge is those crushing pressures at depth make it difficult to engineer vehicles that can withstand those depths. And yet these jellyfish that we're studying, they're found at those depths all of the time in polar waters where it's cold, in tropical waters where it's warmer. And so we thought perhaps we could use these jellyfish as the, a basis for this global ocean exploration platform. I see. And and sort of the, the technology that you're sort of piggybacking on the, on the jellyfish, it, I'm guessing that would have to be pressure resistant, wouldn't it? That, I mean, is that, that's is, is that going to be a difficult aspect of, of designing? So that's the interesting thing. The, the physics of this problem of, of hardening, as we sometimes call it, or, or designing a, a structure to withstand pressure is that the smaller the item is, the more reasonable or, or more straightforward it is to accomplish that task. As the vessel gets larger and larger, the walls of that vehicle have to get thicker, and that makes the whole structure a lot heavier. So we're talking about uh, packages on the size of a, a softball or a cricket ball, perhaps, as opposed to something that a human would need to fit inside. And these jellyfish, they come in sizes that range from a dinner plate to the size of a small vehicle. And so they have the carrying capacity to uh, tow a payload that could take measurements of the ocean temperature, its salinity, the chemical composition of the water, and to track it over time so that we can understand how our oceans are changing in, uh, in almost real time. And and what sort of time frame are you looking at? I mean, I'm I'm guessing that you're still testing in your tank um, in Pasadena. How, do do you have any plans to 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 get your your enhanced jellyfish out into the ocean? We do, and so our initial work just demonstrating electrical control, that is being able to control the the pace of swimming of the animals, that was conducted in a relatively small tank that was only about two meters tall. Uh, we now have a facility here at Caltech that's six meters tall, so almost 20 feet tall that we're able to have these animals swim. And in that facility, we can send a current, uh, a water flow, so that these animals can swim in place for long periods of time. The idea is that we want to replicate in the lab the animal's journey from the surface to several kilometers deep, which would take several days because these animals, while being efficient, aren't very fast. We want to know that over that day's long journey, that the payload continues to function properly, and more importantly, that the animals remain healthy. Again, we want to be sure that the animals are being properly cared for as we implement this platform. So those experiments, understanding their laboratory performance under long time frames are still ongoing. The next stage will be to test them in relatively controlled offshore environments where we know the currents, we can have divers out in the water to spot the uh, the robot jellyfish and make sure they're functioning properly. And then from there, we plan to go as, as deep in the ocean as uh, we can find. I see. And I, I, do you dive, John? Will you be out in the ocean with your jellyfish or will you be on the boat? I happen to be a great deckhand, but not a great swimmer. <laughs> so uh, I'm fortunate to recruit a lot of great graduate students and postdoctoral scholars who uh, are great divers and they love to be underwater. And so uh, it's certainly a team effort. 
<laughs> okay, great. And I, I wanted to ask you about, about some other research that you've done on, on swimming animals. Last year, you published a paper that asks, do swimming animals mix the ocean? And in it, you point out that this idea for mixing um, began as a joke, but it's now considered a, a serious scientific question. Well, what is the evidence for animals mixing the ocean? And why is it important that scientists investigate this further? Well, I'll start with your second question first as to why it's important. As I mentioned earlier, the ocean is uh, the home to millions of marine species. It's important for the regulation of our climate on land. And so we need a better understanding of how the ocean works and how the ocean might be changing with the impacts of climate change. Now, we know that the wind is an important factor. The, the wind over the ocean surface drives some of the circulation in the ocean. We know that tidal currents are also important. The effect of the moon tends to also regulate ocean currents. It was maybe uh, 60 years ago now that Walter Monk in a paper, he's a famous oceanographer, suggested that swimming animals might also have an impact, although it turns out he was joking about the idea. When you do the calculation of how much chemical energy is available to those animals in the ocean, you get numbers that suggest that in principle, they could have a significant impact on ocean mixing. The question is whether these animals, which generally are pretty small, you know, the size of your thumbnail, could they together when they swim create mixing and transport in the ocean on length scales that matter for a very big ocean? The ocean is a billion, over a billion cubic kilometers. And so the question is, can those tiny animals really have an impact at that large scale? We've done work in the lab suggesting mechanisms that could let tiny organisms create much larger currents. And the next step is to see whether those processes actually occur in the real ocean. So, so you're talking about the, the, these organisms swimming rather than if, I don't know, I could imagine if a large number of organisms move from one place to another, they could change the uh, properties of the ocean and, and cause currents to flow, but it is the actual movement of those organisms collectively that, that you're looking at. We are, well, so it's the water motion outside their bodies, particularly when they're, when they're swimming vertically. So horizontal motion occurs in the ocean all of the time. It's actually much harder to mix vertically in the ocean because the layers are what we call stratified, meaning that the water at the top is a little bit less dense than the water at lower levels. And so when you try to mix that water, you've got to do some work. You've got to change the potential energy of the system, as we would say. So the question is whether the animals are able to mix the ocean, to put enough energy in to cause that vertical mixing. The thing that they have going for them is that these animals actually constitute the largest mass migrations on Earth every single day. So trillions of these organisms at sunset, they rise up to the ocean surface from depth, and then at, in the morning, they, they'll swim back down. And it's that daily vertical migration that we think could hold the key to vertical mixing in the ocean. Still to be proved, it's only a hypothesis at this stage, but the math says that at large scale, there's enough energy available and there are enough organisms available in important, climatically important regions of the ocean. Uh, but we still haven't found that smoking gun of the mixing occurring in the ocean. I see. So, so you've asked the question, are you, is this an active area of research for you at the moment? 
It is, you know, in fact, it, it in some ways uh, connects to the work we discussed with these jellyfish sensors. One challenge you'll find is that if you were to take a mechanical device into the water to try to measure one of these vertical migrations, the animals will sometimes avoid those measurement devices. And so it's very hard to get that uh, smoking gun shot of the animals swimming vertically and creating mixing. These jellyfish robots that we're designing have a more natural swimming motion. In fact, if you see them in a group of other jellyfish, you really couldn't pick them out except for the blinking uh, LED lights that we have on our electronics. And so our thought is that we can use systems like this that are more biocompatible to be able to get close to those vertical migrations or even within them and to take these key measurements to understand how these vertical migrations might impact the water around them. Okay. Well, that, 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 that's really interesting. We look forward to, uh, to seeing what you, what you and your colleagues come up with on, yeah. on the animals mixing the, the ocean. Me too. Uh, I'm, I'm, I suppose my final question goes back to the, the, the aeronautics part of your, of your job title. Um, you, you also study the, the fluid dynamics of wind turbines. And I was just curious, you know, what the, what the state of the art uh, with regards to turbines is, do we currently have a good understanding of the physics of turbines? Or is there much more to learn in terms of making them more efficient, maybe quieter? Yeah, I can answer that a, a couple of ways. I will say from an engineering perspective, we can certainly see today engineers building wind turbines that are very highly efficient in terms of their conversion of moving wind to electricity. In fact, some of the modern wind turbines reach the theoretical limits for what we expect a wind energy conversion device to produce. Now, the challenge is that when you have a wind farm that is a group of these wind turbines, that first row of wind turbines that sees the wind, they're going to perform very well. But in their process of converting energy, they end up creating choppy air behind them. We call that turbulence, very similar to the turbulence you might experience on a flight. That turbulent air reduces the performance of all of the other turbines in that group. And so the frontier in this field is to figure out how to optimize the performance of groups of turbines so that the whole can be maybe even greater than the sum of its parts, but at least equal to the sum of its parts. Today, the whole is actually much less than the sum of its parts in the sense that to get a wind farm to function well, we have to spread those wind turbines very far apart so that they don't interact with one another. We found maybe a decade ago that we could take inspiration from some of our work in the ocean where you can see a fish school swimming through the ocean. Those individual fish also generate turbulent choppy wakes, but they don't separate as far apart as possible. They just synchronize their motion in certain ways. And in fact, in those cases, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. The energy efficiency of that group can be higher than the individual fish swimming by themselves. So we and other groups have spent a lot of time thinking about how to translate those insights into practical wind farm design. Uh, one of my former students, Mike Howland at MIT, has been working with utility wind farms, so real operational wind farms, and demonstrating that by doing clever things like steering the direction that the wind turbines are pointed, you can improve the performance of the entire wind farm in a way that takes some inspiration from those fish in the ocean. And is that is that most mostly computational work? Are you running big sort of fluid dynamics simulations, or or is there also um, you know field measurements involved and and maybe working in the lab as well? 
We were fortunate in, in my lab to be able to actually test these ideas early on in the field. And that's important because computer models will sometimes tell you what you want to hear. And it's going out into the field and building an experiment that really is the test of, of any idea. Uh, at Caltech, we were able to buy a plot of land north of campus and actually build a research wind farm using smaller scale wind turbines on the order of 10 meters as opposed to the 100 meter behemoths that you see today. But we were able to demonstrate in those field tests that this idea of interacting between the turbines to improve their performance, uh, that this really worked. Now, more recently, we actually have gone to conventional wind farms in India and other locations with major wind farm operators. And we've been able to demonstrate that those same ideas do hold on the big 100 meter wind turbines as well. I see. Okay. So, and, and what, what, what sort of goal do, do, do you have in this is ultimately, is it, you, you think that you, you'll be able to advise people on exactly where to put their um, wind turbines and, and boost their efficiency significantly? Yeah, there are, there are several opportunities here. One is in new projects. If I have a new plot of land and I want to understand how to get the most out of that plot of land, the theory that we've developed and the computational tools that have been validated in experiments can be used to do that design process. The other place is an offshore wind. That's a place that's still burgeoning, especially here in the United States, where you might have concerns that you don't want to take up a huge swath of the ocean because of shipping lanes and uh, potential impacts on marine organisms. And so if you want to identify an effective location that's a bit constrained in the ocean, these tools can be useful. And then the third area where these techniques can be important is in what we call repowering of existing wind farms. So here in California, in the United States, we had some of the earliest wind farms, which came online uh, almost 40 years ago now. The challenge is that those plots of land have great wind resource, but a lot of old wind turbines sitting on those plots of land. What we've been able to do with this idea of wind turbine optimization is to imagine putting smaller wind turbines, large arrays of them on that same property in between the existing older wind turbines. And we've shown that in some cases you could double the energy output from those older wind farms by taking advantage of these uh, aerodynamic interactions between both between the smaller wind turbines and themselves, but also between the larger, what are called horizontal axis wind turbines, the conventional propeller style wind turbines you're used to seeing, and this next generation of wind turbines, some of which rotate on a vertical axis. So they have a different geometry than the conventional wind turbines. So there are several areas in which these ideas uh, could have a potential impact in the future. I see. Oh, well, that's that's really fascinating. I mean, it must be. Uh, I mean, it, it must be a great job to uh, to to be doing research on on things you know ranging from jellyfish to uh, to wind turbines. And I, I'm sure there's lots of other things that you're interested in that that we haven't covered today. Yeah, it's. The, I think it's the best job in the world. I'm fortunate to do it here at Caltech and to do it with a bunch of really talented grad students and postdocs who who also have a broad range of interests centered on physics. And so particularly in my field of fluid dynamics, it's really fun to be able to work on blood flow and jellyfish and wind turbines all in the same day. And, and that's what the physics and math allows us to do. Well, that's great. Th thanks so much for talking to me, John. And um, uh, John and, and his colleagues, th their paper 
uh, on jellyfish is called Electromechanical Enhancement of Live Jellyfish for Ocean Exploration. And it has been submitted for publication in the journal Bioinspiration and Biomimetics. Thanks for coming on the podcast, John. Thanks again for having me. It's been fun. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to John DeBerry for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester is in conversation with the astrophysicist and author Emma Chapman about the history of radio astronomy. Chapman, who's at the UK's University of Nottingham, talks about the do-it-yourself ethic of radio astronomers and highlights the valuable contributions made by people outside the established academic community. That podcast is called Radio Pioneers, the Enduring Role of Amateurs in Radio Astronomy, and you can find it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.